Hello and welcome to a History of the German special, talking about the empires of the Normans with Dr. Levi Roach. Dr. Levi Roach is Associate Professor at the University of Exeter. He's also the author of multiple prize-winning books, The Kingship and Consent in Anglo-Saxon England, King Ethelred the Unready, the best-named monarch in the Middle Ages, Forgery and Memory at the End of the First Millennium, a book I possess and cherish, And he has now finished his latest work, The Empires of the Normans. Levi, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me on. So, The Empires of the Normans. So what can you tell us about the book? What is it about? Why did you write it? And who is it for? So it's designed for a general audience, for anybody really interested in the Middle Ages, the Normans, the period kind of more widely. And the whole point of the book really is to put the Normans front, right and center of development. Because I think popular history goes in waves at times that certain things mm. go in and out of fashion. And right now, you know, Vikings are very in fashion. Anglo-Saxons are quite in fashion in the Anglosphere. But for whatever reason, the Normans really have gone out of fashion, despite mm. them having had an absolutely transformational effect on European history, but also the history of North Africa, of the Mediterranean, of the Middle East. So this was an opportunity to try to put them back into the picture and particularly for an audience in the UK or the US who might be used to think of the Normans really as kind of based in Normandy and conquerors of England. Mm. Say, yes, that's all very important, but they're also doing a lot of other really interesting and important stuff in Southern Italy, in Iberia, also elsewhere in the British Isles, in Wales, in Scotland, over in Ireland. <laughs> wow, that is impressive. So you're trying to push it on so the next HBO series will be on the Normans. <laughs> well, yes, we shall see. If only, if only. But yes, at the very least, to put it, provide a bit of a counterbalance to what otherwise is a lot of very good work, but very, mm. very much focused on a kind of a pre-1066 moment of uh, British history. Fantastic. So, um, I mean, we, you know, we've encountered the um, uh, the Normans a couple of times in the history of the Germans, obviously, um, but we've never really had the ability to to talk about it in in context about the the the, the whole thing. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm usually usually dedicated fan to the Normans, so um, <laughs> this is a great opportunity to do that. So, can we start at sort of the beginning? Where did they come from? Um, how did they establish themselves in Normandy? How were they able to? you know, to build themselves up when, when other groups didn't, didn't be, uh, haven't been quite so successful. Yeah, so the key thing to bear in mind with the Normans in terms of their origins is that the very term Normans just is the same actually as the original medieval Northmen, i.e. Mm. it's a term for Scandinavian Vikings. This is retained in modern French and German, where the term Normanen or uh, Norma can mean both Normans and also as it were, Vikings. We, we've lost this in English, where we speak of Normans or North. The medieval terms are the same terms. One just melds into the other. So the key thing to bear in mind is that what we're dealing with is originally a Scandinavian settlement on the north coast of France that's created in the early 10th century, probably around 9-11. Now, it isn't the first settlement like this, nor would it be the last. It was quite common for Viking groups to settle in continental Europe, as for that matter, in the British Isles, and to set up kingdoms, most of these tended to last a generation or two. Mm -hmm. What was unusual and unique about the Normans and what, the reason why they've alone gone down in history is because that settlement from 9-11 then goes on to become uh, a well-established duchy, largely independent of the French crown. Um, and the reason why 
that settlement succeeded where others failed was probably a combination on the one hand of luck. There were some very close run moments. 942, for example, the, the second Duke of Normandy is famously killed by the Count of Flanders and the entire duchy pretty much falls apart. So it's only very good luck that his um, young son and heir survives that. There's a significant element of luck, but also the other thing that probably makes this settlement more successful, particularly than earlier ones, is it comes at a time when the French crown is very weak and is weakening. Mm. So the king's ability to project power and authority is becoming less and less. That's partly why, in fact, he settles the Normans. He's settling them as allies against some of his other secular enemies. Um, but this means, therefore, that there is a kind of opening to create an independent power base, and they're able to seize that. And certainly by the 960s, 970s, they've become now a really well-established presence, one of the leading powers in, in northern France, and largely independent of the French crown. So nominally, they are counts or dukes to owe loyalty to the French king. But on a day-to-day -day basis, this is absolutely meaningless. And we even have documents where the French king acknowledges that he has no power in Northern. Yeah, there's something I think I read it. It's either in Chris Wickham or in Norman Cantor about Normandy and the internal built up of the duchy, you know, with under William the Conqueror and even earlier, and the comparison to Henry III's uh, empire and the Reichskirchen system. And, and I was wondering, are, are there similarities between the way Normandy was run and, say, Henry III had run the empire? One could certainly see certain elements of similarities, yes. I'd be hesitant to push them too far because the key difference is that Normandy is quite a bit smaller. Mm. Um, and what this means is, so initially ducal power is it's slowly growing and it, the land originally granted to the Normans, it should be emphasized, is only a fraction of what becomes Norman. They yeah. have to expand this. Um, but I would say that by the time we're getting into the 11th century, so by the you know 1020s or something like that, we then have most of Normandy under a uh, fairly firm ducal authority. By that point, we have certain similarities. Certainly we do have a very close alliance with the church. They're regularly putting relatives into particularly the post of Archbishop of Rouen, mm. but also increasingly as Bishop of Bayeux. So famously Otto of Bayeux is the half brother of William the Conqueror. Mm. So in terms of that, you do see some quite close similarities to what we see in Germany, but probably the better point of comparison would be a German duchy. So maybe the way that someone like Henry II ruled Bavaria before he was yeah. a monarch. So that would, I think, be the um, uh, most natural point of uh, uh, contact contact there. Because, I mean, as, as a county and then later Duchy Normandy itself, it's about that kind of size. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in that same kind of manner that the most powerful or successful, as Henry II certainly was, um, managed at times to have very, very, very close control. That, I think, is probably the biggest difference, is, is that they're able to, uh, for the most part, monopolize power more successfully than Henry III possibly could. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Now, I mean, if I say that, you know, the biggest Norman achievement that everybody knows about is the conquest of England, and, you know, we can probably talk for hours about this. Um, but um, can you sort of give us a bit of an outline about what is it you've seen in, in William the Conqueror's, you know, military exploits, his, his uh, approach to state building, that is sort of distinctly Norman? Well, I think the thing that is distinctly new, certainly to the British Isles that he brings in, that is directly coming from Normandy, perhaps not completely unique to Normandy and all of Europe, but the Normans are leading exponents of, is this um, ambition and uh, aristocratic expansionism. 
Mm. There is this tendency that the Normans are always trying to, you know, expand their frontiers, either the monarchs themselves or if not, then their aristocrats. Mm. And so certainly we see that very, very clearly with the Norman conquest, because this is obviously, um, you know, as you say, one of those very famous events that William comes over with a, a large force and defeats the English and is able to take the English crown relatively swiftly. There's, there's some very serious revolts, but fundamentally England is a relatively centralized kingdom. So once he's knocked out the King Harold, he's able to become King himself. But what's interesting, I think really in terms of the dynamics, much more interesting than just that back then, is what happens within a few years of the earliest Norman settlement, which is William's own leading men start leading forays into Wales. They start at times conflicts with Scotland, but particularly Wales is then next on the agenda. And that's not something that William really cares about. He's happy mm. to encourage them. He's happy for them to go ahead and do it under his loose ages, but it's not a priority. He's got enough fish to fry between England and Normandy, but his aristocrats now had a taste for conquest. So we see immediately from the West Midlands, um, large parts of Northern Wales, significant south. So by the time of William's death, um, a third to almost half of Wales is under loose Norman overlordship. Mm. Um, and by 1093, local chroniclers say all Wales had fallen. Now that was an exaggeration, but <laughs> it gives you a sense for just how quickly the Normans had expanded that way. And that wasn't something that we'd previously seen. So the English kings previously, the Anglo-Saxon kings of England before this period, had normally been more powerful than their Welsh neighbours and occasionally exact tribute. But they didn't seem to have any particular interest in uh, settling, colonising. Mm. Yet, you know, one generation from the conquest on, there's very, very active efforts to conquer and colonize Wales. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be sort of part of the um, the business model, if you like, for uh, the king to his aristocrats to say, well, you know, you come with me, you know, we'll get some of the spoils of what we're doing now, but you're free then to move on because, you know, we see the same thing with Bohemond late. You know, generally the, the Norman aristocrats deal with the king is, you know, you give me the opportunity to expand where, wherever we go. Exactly. That, that seems to be the key thing is this, this, this driving desire for more and more and more. And in terms of that, as I say, that's something that I think is not exclusive to the Normans, but the Normans are at the kind of cutting edge and the very forefront of developing this. And it's, this is kind of part of a, a wider process that Rob Bartlett described very powerfully in the early 90s as the making of Europe. But this kind mm. of process whereby between about 950 and 1350 in his model, we go from having a kind of core um, uh, uh, culture um, based around um, no, uh, based around France, Northern Italy and Germany. Mm. And out of this core, the aristocracy expands widely and, rap- and quite rapidly in many respects. And by by 1350, we get to a situation where the kind of cultural forms we associate with them, many of the languages as well, have then been exported pretty much across Europe as we now know it. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, one of the expansion is, is the one that we come across most in the history of the Germans, which is the Southern Italian bit, which sort of starts in around 1000. So why did they leave Normandy? How did they arrive there? How did they build their first initial positions? Yeah, so the Southern Italian case is a really significant and interesting one that, that doesn't tend to get as much attention um, uh, in the Anglophone sphere as it, as it perhaps should, because it's actually their first major sets of conquests in many respects. Mm. So what we seem to be seeing is local chroniclers start to mention Normans there around the year 1000. It's not quite clear how many are around, how permanent a present they are at this point. Most of our early accounts suggest that they're there as 
as mercenaries, sometimes while traveling to or from um, uh, the Holy Land or elsewhere as pilgrims. Mm -hmm. um, and the key thing to note here is that pilgrimage to the Holy Land is becoming more popular. And the net one natural route from Normandy to the Holy Land would be through Southern Italy. The other thing is that Southern Italy itself has a very popular pilgrimage spot in terms of the shrine of at Monte Gargano of mm -hmm. the Archangel Michael. And the Archangel's cult is actually very popular in Normandy as well. So Mont Saint-Michel. All oh, oh, right, is, yes, yeah. Um, uh, of course, dedicated to uh, Michael. So there's this strong devotion from an early stage, it seems, in Normandy towards the Archangel Michael. So what we are probably seeing is some of that being pilgrimage simply to Southern Italy to visit that shrine, but also mm -hmm. other elements being to the Holy Land. And because that shrine at Monte Gargano is in southern Italy on the natural route to the Holy Land. In fact, it's not always either or. Sometimes it's a matter of stopping on the way there or back. But these routes seem to have then first brought them in term, in, inter, into intermittent contact in southern Italy. And our earliest account suggests that a group is recruited to help fight some of the Islamic forces by the uh, population of Salerno. Mm. Um, uh, they ask them to give them a hand and the Normans uh, say, well, we're pilgrims, you don't have any weapons. So they give them some weapons and then they're very successful and they say oh please stay on they say no we, we can't but they say then please send some of your countrymen over so uh these accounts are all stylized and from about 100 years later but what they're suggesting is that at times at least they're being recruited and drawn into local conflicts and southern italy is very factionally divided we have lombard principalities these old kingdoms for small level polities surviving from the early medieval period we also have parts of the Byzantine Empire, uh, but parts of it that are quite isolated and often neglected when, when there are ch challenges elsewhere. And then we have an Islamic power based on Sicily. So it's politically fragmented and they're able to then start finding a niche for themselves there. First as mercenaries, serving on all sides, in fact, quite rapidly. And then they start establishing themselves as independent players and carving out their own domains. And that kind of move between being servants to being their own lords happens in the 1040s, the early 1040s. Uh, we start seeing that happen. And that's associated with the emergence of, for the first time, a, a leader of this group known as William Ironarm or William of Hauteville, who's part of a group of half-brothers who end up becoming the dynastic founders of uh, this, uh, the Southern Italian Norman uh, uh, Skion. Yeah. My father always used to sort of tell this story that the Oteville brothers, they came together and joined at the hip riding into southern Italy and taking it over in a matter of months, which clearly is not the case. So, you know, this dynamic between the brothers, I thought, found quite interesting in your book. How did they support or not support each other? Well, the key to success to a certain extent was, in fact, that the brothers were competitors as much <laughs> as allies. So um, and indeed, within the brothers, we have two sets. So. Tancred de Hauteville, their father, had two wives. He was a relatively low-level Norman aristocrat. A man had a very, very large number of sons. And so clearly, one of the problems for them, in fact, is that they didn't stand any chance of maintaining their status if they stayed in Normandy. So first of all, it seems to be that a number of his elder sons, um, who are full brothers, head southern Italy. And the, the eldest of these seems to have been this chap, William Ironarm, who becomes the first leader of the group. But not too long after that, some of his younger half-brothers go over particularly um, Robert Giscard and Roger um, uh, go over. And they actually go and ask and say, oh, could you, you know, to, to their elder brothers, could, could you help us out? And they sort of turn around and say no. Um, and it's probably partly that they don't have much they could give them at this early stage. The, 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 their entire conquests are kind of hanging by a thread. 
but it's also the fact that they see these their younger half brothers as a threat uh, every bit as much as that and this is a recurring feature we seem to see because this isn't a case like william who's you know duke and acknowledged leader of the group um leading a single expedition this is kind of a group that's slowly coalesced around the hopefields there are other families competing with them within their family there's competition so there's not a really clear hierarchy or sense that someone should innately be the leader so one of the features of this is that they're all really out for themselves above all else. And as long as whoever's leading them can balance it so that it's in his brother's interests to help him as well, that he, he provides enough carrot mm. and everyone stays on board. But the moment there isn't enough to entice them on, there end up being problems. And so the, the two figures who end up really becoming the dominant ones for these younger brothers, Robert and Roger, and the way that Roger ends up harnessing his younger brother Roger's uh, ambitions is that he basically says you can have half of uh, Calabria and you can have all of Sicily but you've got to conquer them <laughs> and he says this at a point where they have about half of Calabria and he says I'll keep the half we've got already <laughs> yeah. here are some men good luck basically <laughs> um, yeah. uh, but this is the kind of dynamic you're seeing so he's, he's, he's happy to allow Roger to have quite a bit of power and influence provided it's under it's working in his interests yeah I mean, I, I think Robert Giscard is really one of the most, most fascinating of the Normans. And when, when I look again at the history of the Germans, he only pops up basically tilting the balance for the Pope uh, every time the, the emperor just gets a little bit of an up. But I think that was sort of, you know, that papal imperial relationship was only a sideshow essentially for his broader political perspective, right? I mean, he, his, his view was much more sort of towards the Adriatic. I mean, did he, did he genuinely think he could take Constantinople at some point? I think he probably did. I mean, the other thing is, I think the key to their success, as already hinted at, is this overweening ambition. Mm. Um, they are they, the, the most successful Normans are far more ambitious than anybody else. They, 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 they dream big. They think they can achieve what others don't think they can achieve. And as a result of it, they don't always achieve all of it, but they get much closer. But as you say, there ends up being this complex nexus there because the Normans initially in their very early years are often paid allies because they're there fighting Muslims in the south they're there fighting the Byzantines who are orthodox not um, uh, as it were what we now call Catholic Latin right Christians so in the early years they're supporting them but then in the later years we end up in this complex situation where the popes tend to be allied with the emperors or the Normans but almost yeah. never both they're, they're the two big secular neighbors and what you mainly you don't want is them both getting along with each other yeah. so we do get these kinds of complex power plays but as you say for the Normans themselves those are largely a sideshow um, and they engage them insofar as they allow themselves to establish themselves in Southern Italy. They're not really interested in conquering Rome. They're not interested in heading further north in Italy. Under Robert in those early years, he's based in Apulia. So in the Southeast of Italy. And as you see from there, from there, the natural base, natural way he looks then is across the Adriatic. And he's been eating up large sections of Byzantine territory. There's good evidence that he's ideologically starting to model his rule on Byzantine patterns of rule and thought and things like that. His ultimate goal does seem to have been, if he could achieve it, um, to perhaps replace the emperor in Constantinople. And it isn't completely unbelievable because he's doing this. So Robert's main conquest in the 1060s, 1070s in Southern Italy, then in the 1080s, he's largely established himself there. This is a period when the Byzantine empire is absolutely imploding. They've been defeated severely massacred in 1073 by the Seljuk Turks. They've lost about half their territory, including their most wealthy provinces in Asia Minor. Um, and it looks like all it would take perhaps is the most gentlest nudge 
to push the empire over. They're also having revolts from their own Norman um, mercenaries who even besiege Constantinople and set up a rival Norman state in Asia Minor. The 1070s are a complete mess for Byzantium. So mm. it's in that context that Roger seems to have started developing these ambitions. And then in the 1080s, once he's in a position where he's secure enough in Italy, he then launches some major forays across the Adriatic over into the Balkans and seems to have been aiming, if possible, to head along the, the Via Ignatia, the old Roman road that connects the Adriatic to Constantinople. It, it fails, but it wasn't a completely rash or daft idea. And a part of that is led by, by Bohemond, who, you know, if, if I read your between the lines, he seems to be your favorite Norman. Is that is that right? I mean, you know, he's I mean, he's generally a cool guy. So um... he certainly is one of the most fascinating characters you encounter here. I mean, Bohemond is one of those people who would have probably been very fun to go to the pub with. You wouldn't necessarily want to trust him with your money, shall we say, you know, um, he was an absolute chancer. Bohemond was interested in Bohemond and no one else. But one of the reasons for this is that he himself has, in fact, been edged out by the fact he's the eldest son of Robert, but from a first marriage. And Robert's later marriage is to a Lombard princess, Sikalgaita. And one of the agreements of this seems to basically be that his sons with her will be his heirs. So he has this kind of elder son who is now being treated as something of a bastard, not really fully legitimate. And one of the other reasons why he's probably invading the Byzantine Empire and the Balkans is his, at the back of his mind is even if he doesn't manage to completely defeat and take over the Byzantine Empire, if he can nick a few provinces, these might be good territories to give to Bohemond, who otherwise he doesn't have much land to give to in mm. Italy, and who otherwise is likely to be a threat to his younger half-brothers, and indeed goes on to be a threat to his younger half-brothers. So indeed, he brings Bohemond with him, uh, and it's thought probably rightly that he has at the back of his mind that these could be some domains for Bohemond to basically be his own independent agent, maybe under the loose overlordship of his younger brothers in the future. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, he ultimately ends up owning his own principality in, in Antioch. Yes, know, by, by, by hook up, and by crook, right? Yes, and Bohemond ends up, ends up going on the first crusade, ends up at crucial moments saving the crusaders at decisive battles, but ends up being the one who manages to successfully end the siege of Antioch and take Antioch. And then he decides, now I've got Antioch. That's all right. The rest <laughs> of you can head on, have fun in Jerusalem. Bye-bye. <laughs> Um, which, as I say, I, th I think is him down to a T. Is he? He's you yeah. know he sees crusade. He when the first crusade is called, he's kind of ended up being edged out dynastically. Those Balkan expedition expeditions haven't worked. He's been edged out in southern Italy. He hears about this expedition to the Middle East. Great land territory, you know, opportunities for expansion, opportunities to perhaps get my own back at the Byzantine Empire emperor as well. Sign me up. He heads over, and the moment he's got what he really wants. Then he decides that's enough crusading. The rest of you can do the rest. <laughs> Indeed, um, and so if we talk about the sort of the next phase in southern Italy, so that's sort of Roger the Second. And if you ask a Sicilian, that would be the Golden Age. You know, wealth, tolerance. Is is that really what happened? That particular that tolerance element, or is this more commercial, pragmatic? What Roger tries to do. So if we're looking at Roger II, who, as you say, is that this is the kind of moment where it all comes together completely in the kind of 1130s, 1140s for the Normans in southern Italy. But they've been slowly building. Uh, and Roger is the son of Roger I, that younger brother of uh, Robert Guiscard. And he's the one who declares himself king and ends up having this very powerful centralized court, really impressive artworks and things like that. Interesting evidence, as you know, of cultural mixing. So he's issuing documents. 
in Arabic, in Greek, in Latin. He's got all of these languages and cultures mixed in ways which, certainly for a modern observer, it's very tempting to look, look at very kindly and see this as this kind of a multicultural society, one that has quite a bit of um, uh, tolerance and toleration. But that's only really perhaps half true. Um, what we're seeing is very much pragmatic toleration rather than in a kind of embrace of multiculturalism as we'd understand it now. What's happened is that Roger and previously his father have conquered Sicily, and that's been that key element, a part of Southern Italy that was previously Islamic. So they have a significant Islamic population. They've come to rule there. The Christians who were living in Sicily at the time were largely Greek, right, as well. So we're uh, what we now call Orthodox, not Catholic. So they, they're balancing a lot of different things. And they, of course, themselves are Latin, right, uh, i.e. Catholic. And so in the short term, there's no interest whatsoever in rocking the boat or upsetting people. They need to work within existing structures of rule. The Islamic um, emirate there had been ruled very um, uh, well, very efficiently. There was no real interest in getting rid of all that, of getting rid of useful civil servants and so on. So in the short term, they do nothing to move against, uh, move aggressively against the Islamic minorities. They don't upset the balance too much. At the same time, however, consistently for leading royal advisors, they prefer Christians to Muslims and amongst the Christians, Latin right. And so there's a clear direction of travel. And Roger II himself is said to have preferred advisors who are Francophone which is quite telling there because it's suggesting that his native tongue isn't even, his most comfortable one isn't even um, Southern Italian dialects. So at the same time, within that kind of toleration, there is very much an attempt to move things away from that. Um, and in the long term, that ends up being very much the direction of travel. By the late 12th century, we start seeing moves against minority groups. And by the 13th century, we see forcible expulsions of the remaining uh, Islamic enclaves. Which, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, on the one hand, that's what Roger II does. On the other hand, he doesn't actually get involved in the crusading movement, at, I mean, pretty much at all, right? I mean, in the beginning, he is, he, his mother marries the king of um, uh, Jerusalem, but that sort of goes sour, right? Yeah, so one of the things that's often been wondered is why the Sicilian Normans aren't more involved in the Crusades, given their location, given their experience dealing with Islamic powers. But it seems likely to have been a product of two things. One is very much that cultural pragmatic toleration, which, mm. although it may not be, as I say, multiculturalism, it doesn't imply that they um, were in any way pro-Islamic. It means that on a daily basis, they're not treating Muslims as en absolute enemies of the faith in a mm. kind of way that would be much easier to do so if you're coming from northern France or from the Rhine. Yeah. So that almost certainly does dampen perhaps, perhaps a little bit of the zeal. But the other key element, as you note there, is this marriage alliance of his mother to the king of Jerusalem that then goes horribly wrong. And she's rejected and sent packing. Um, and this is said, William of Tyre says that thereafter the Normans, the, the Hopevilles took dynastic hatred um, <laughs> crusade in the Holy Land. And there seems to be, it may be slightly exaggerated by William, but there seems to be a kernel of truth there as well, that they had a very close dynastic tie that could have led to, in fact, Sicily and Jerusalem, the two crowns coming together. Unlikely that that unification would have been functionally worked for very long, but um, but it could have led to very close interchange between the reeds. But mm. precisely because it then goes horribly wrong, that has the reverse effect of completely alienating. You, you mentioned sort of the cultural life at Roger II's court. You know, there's a sort of streak that goes through the Norman history, that passion for architecture, for art. You look around England and it's full of Norman churches and it seems there are no Anglo-Saxon churches left. 
And even, you know, if you go down to, to Puglia, which is full of Norman style churches. So, so how important was this for the Normans to, to basically build in stone or leave their legacy in stone? I think for the Normans, they were very interested in building bigger and better and having this larger than things previously were, just as their conquests were larger than life. And we, we see this with the scale, not only the rebuilding of churches, but the scale of this, for example. Um, in England, time and again, they build a bigger church than England's ever seen. And then five years later, they build an even bigger one and so on. That's the most dramatic one. But also things like Doomsday Book is the biggest book that's been produced in England for about four or 500 years. So there's all sorts of ways in which they're doing this. But I think we're also seeing it in sometimes in slightly different guises. So one of the things the Normans and almost all their conquests do is align themselves very closely with the church um, and where possible with the popes in terms of that. So in Southern Italy, they're framing themselves. Although they may be pragmatically tolerating Muslim groups, they're also very happy to play up the fact that they are a Christian power. And they're very much framing what they're doing as helping the Pope against um, them and also helping bringing regions that have previously been Orthodox more firmly back into the Catholic fold. So that certainly is one important element. And of course, then building churches is an important show of patronage here. There is also, though, I think a subtle and important difference between what we see in Southern Italy, which is largely building on existing traditions. And it's more of a, uh, a kind of uh, mixing pot of bits of Norman architecture with local tradition to what we mm -hmm. see in England, where there's a much starker break. Now, there is still some feed in from traditional Anglo-Saxon approaches to architecture. But fundamentally, what we're seeing is Romanesque architecture coming to England in a big way that had previously mm -hmm. been um, very popular in mainland Europe, but had not been the Norman. Um, and this is something fundamentally new, but the reason why we see in England, why we also see this almost complete erasure, as you know, of the previous church architecture, is the way that the conquest is framed there as well, is that the conquest of England is framed as a civilizing mission. William claims that Harold has usurped the throne. This is a sign of how rotten England is, rotten to the core. And he also frames it, therefore, religiously. He seeks out support from the Pope for his conquest. One of the things he's able to play up is the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time is uncanonically in place. He's been, they'd ejected William of Jumiege and placed in Stigand. And the Pope had already, in fact, been upset about this. So, so they had, in fact, uh, an irregular Archbishop who didn't really deserve to be Archbishop at all. So William's able to play this all up to show just how bad the state of England society and church is, that it's morally bankrupt. So what the Normans are doing is they are the kind of um, broom coming in to sweep the English church and society. And that therefore justifies the fact that he replaces almost all the episcopate, almost all the English bishops, the moments they die, they're replaced almost always with continental figures, often with Normans, and they rebuild the churches as well. That's again, effacing, building a new, a fresh start. So that, that's absolutely essential, the kind of ideology underpinning William's conquest. And that's why in England, as I say, so in, in, if you go to someplace like Puglia, you'll see the Norman mixed with lots yeah. of, whereas in England, you'll see Romanesque, Romanesque, Romanesque. And actually often you, you struggle to find Gothic architecture. <laughs> they built the Romanesque so large and so well that it became the kind of defining feature of medieval English church architecture. We talked briefly about Wales, Ireland, but you know, they, they're basically, they got everywhere, right? There's North Africa, Spain, and you know, you mentioned also they were earlier in Asia Minor. How did that? How did that come about? Yeah, it typically starts. They typically come in as mercenaries and then try to find uh, a, a kind of a niche for themselves and then expand out from it. And sometimes it's successful and sometimes not. That's that's what they. That's how they started in southern Italy. They started mm. fighting for the local Lombards. Then they started fighting for themselves. Then they conquered the local Lombards. 
Um, and we see this kind of replicated elsewhere. So they do this in Byzantium. So the Byzantines get to know the Normans first, fighting them in southern Italy. But mm. They rapidly realize they're good at fighting, so they start recruiting them too. Um, so the Normans, William Ironarm, in fact, took part in a famous expedition in 1038, where the Byzantines tried to retake Sicily from uh, the Islamic Emirate there. From then on, the Normans are a uh, periodic and significant presence as mercenaries in the Byzantine armies, so from the 40s onwards, where they are often highly successful, but also highly volatile whenever things are not going their way or they, they think they'll do better not fighting for the Byzantines, they revolt. Um, and in a sense, that model though of recruiting them in, bringing in Westerners to fight, is then what scaled up, in fact, with the First Crusade. And Alexius um, Komnenos, who requests the assistance of the Crusaders and um, is responsible for the First Crusade, is also the one who has been responsible for, for example, defeating Bohemond and Robert in the Balkans. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's somebody who's well aware of the dynamics of Normans and how they can be used in different kind of manners. So we see that kind of sideshow. We see something similar in Spain, where they take part in the capture of Lisbon as an essential element for Afonso o Grande, the first king of Portugal. They're also involved in setting up a proto-state for a while, Robert Burdett in uh, Catalonia. Again, this is one of those kinds of near misses that perhaps not far off actually, uh, expanding further uh, on the model of his Italian counterpart. So there's a number of kind of what might consider false starts there and in the Middle East that in a hypothetical alternative world could have led to lasting Norman uh, polities in, in Iberia or in the Middle East. And then as you know, there's also this wonderful North African escapade of kind of 10 years or so. That one's a little bit closer perhaps in model to what we see with England and the Norman conquest. That's Roger II seeing a moment of weakness from the zero rulers of North Africa to his immediate south, deciding I'm going to set up shop there and replace them. But after Roger's death, then the Norman presence there is pretty much wiped out. His, his son is too busy establishing himself in Sicily. And while that's going on, the Almohad Caliphate, which is the expanding power that was already threatening Roger's North African domains, basically obliterates them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's all these other areas they're active in. And so across the Mediterranean and across Britain and Ireland, they're, they're making their influence felt absolutely everywhere. Yeah. There, there has never been any kind of attempt to bring the empires of the Normans under one emperor. No, no. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I, had, I had to have quite lengthy discussions with my publishers who wanted the title to be Empire of the Normans because it sounds a bit, <laughs> a bit punchier. And I was trying to say, but the problem is these were never part of a, a single political um, domain. The closest we come to a Norman empire is William the Conqueror's cross-channel realm, which, mm. you know, under his successors ends up in controlling large parts of Wales, all of England as we know it, Normandy, sometimes beyond Normandy, Brittany, Maine, other parts of Northern France. So a very substantial territory there. And then the next closest is Southern Italy, where at times we've got, you know, we have uh, Apulia, Calabria, Campania, Sicily, and then sometimes North Africa, and other mm. bits involved. So that's another really big block. And those are the two biggest kingdoms. But there's always these other groups, these splinter groups who head off from these areas. Bohemond, who goes on First Crusade and sets up his own principality in Antioch. Mm. Um, and there's, there's always this tendency of groups to shoot off from these areas and to try to set themselves up on their own. Um, and, and sometimes there's a need to reel them back in. That, that's how the English really end up and the Normans end up in Ireland. It's mm. that uh, Strongbow, Richard de Clare, gets this invitation over to help Murkita, who's been ejected as uh, King of Leinster. He 
sees an opportunity, says, great, yeah, no, I'll come over and help you. He's originally from Wales himself, so he's part of this, uh, uh, an expansionist Norman family already. He, he, he can see the opportunity, so he heads over, starts set, set, setting up uh, his, his mate Mercator. He then dies, and Strongbow's able to kind of declare himself ruler now of Leinster, <laughs> and is well on route to trying to uh, carve out his own Irish domains. And it's at this point then that Henry II, his feudal overlord, you know, the great Angevin ruler, says, wait a second, no. Raises a massive army, heads over to Ireland and says, yeah, you can have this as held from me, not as your own. But there is this kind of tendency that, you know, clearly Richard would have, you know, if he completely had his own way, just simply established this as his own independent kingdom, entirely independent of Henry II. Henry II knows exactly what he's up to and is able to rein him in. But there, there is this kind of fissile tendency. Mm, yeah, but I mean, there is one Norman emperor <laughs> in the end, uh, is, which is Fred, Frederick II. Oh, that is, you know, I, I think that's that's. Um, I think not not only your perspective. I, I I see this as becoming the you know the general general view now, though as a German, you know, I grew up with Frederick II being the great German uh, emperor. Um, but you know, if if we take sort of his early years and his uh, conflict, or how does he actually get involved with the uh, with the empire in the north? I mean, it's it's literally just because Otto the Fourth starts threatening him in Sicily that he thinks, okay, now I have to basically build up forward defenses all the way up to uh, the, the the channel. <laughs> um, so, to, so to explain how we end up getting Norman influence in Germany, yes, we need to rewind a little bit because. Other than occasional politics in northern France, the Normans didn't get to Germany. Of all those regions I've just mentioned, yeah, that's yeah. one of the ones that they didn't get in substantial numbers. Um, but what ends up happening is because of that long-term, um, uh, at times, conflict um, uh, and complex alliances surrounding the Italian politics, as the German emperors, of course, control northern Italy um, and have an interest in Rome, uh, there's always been this tendency for conflict with the new Norman powers to the south and typically either the Normans are allied with the popes against the emperors or the emperors are allied with the pope against the Normans. But the, you get, tend to get one of those two constellations. The key thing though is the popes absolutely do not want the Normans and the emperors to get off because then they have two massive secular authorities, both more powerful than them, in agreement on either side of their territories completely surrounding them. So that's the kind of name of the game for the popes is ally with one side or the other but never both, or don't at least allow them to ally too firmly with each other. What happens though, is that famously Henry VI um, contracts a marriage alliance. So this is the son of Frederick Barbarossa, marries Constance, who is a Sicilian princess. Not only that, he marries her at a time when her nephew, the King of Sicily, has no heirs. And an agreement of the marriage is from the start that if the Sicilian crown ends up vacant without an heir, without a natural heir from the Hauteville family, Henry will get to become king of Sicily. Now, this is very bad news for the popes. They're, they're very chary of this. This is actually, the history of the Germans podcast is right at that point right now. Oh, so. are you? Oh, excellent. <laughs> so, um, and I was, I, was, I was reading this and, you know, I still can't get my head around the fact that, you know, in the Peace of Venice, the Pope insists on a peace between the empire and the Normans. And actually in that, run-up even than Lucius III seems to have been in favor of the marriage. Uh, and, and then, you know, Urban III wakes up. I mean, he doesn't like 
the Barbarossa, uh, the, the, the Hohenstaufen family anyway. But, uh, you know, then he suddenly realizes this is a complete and utter disaster what's going on. So I'm still not, I still can't get my head around how the Pope comes to that position where he thinks it might be a good idea for these two sides to become I think, friendlier. I think you're probably right that it's a miscalculation, certainly in the long, long term. What he's probably thinking is more immediately in the short term of a, a long time period of conflict in Italy, particularly Northern Italy under Barbarossa yeah. and hoping to kind of establish peaceful relations for the time. He may well also be hoping, of course, that ultimately Henry VI doesn't become king of it, uh, Sicily because there's still a number of variables in play. So mm. it still has to be the case that the king of Sicily has to die without any heirs. And then Henry has to make his presence felt. And of course, in fact, that ends up becoming complicated because the moment that this actually happens and Henry should succeed according to the agreements, what happens? But in fact, the Sicilian um, noblemen don't really want a German ruler. Yeah. They never really had anything to do with the poor. And so they set up an illegitimate Poteville, Tancred, as their monarch. And Henry and Constance attempt to uh, wrest Sicily from them, but unsuccessful. So yeah. they're not really able to do so. so um, I suspect there's also some hope there, in fact, that, that the Hopevilles will manage to find an heir, and even failing that, that, in fact, what ends up happening happens. What's unfortunate for the Popes, though, is that Tancred then dies at almost the perfect moment for Henry VI. Mm. So the problem for him is the first time around, his first go at taking the Italian throne in, 10, in, 11, in 1190 to not 1191, is happening precisely when his father dies. In fact, he mm. probably finds out Barbarossa is dead, while he's traveling south to try to claim the Sicilian crown. Mm. He makes a bit of a go at it, but he can't go to try too long because he also needs to establish himself north of the Alps. And as I'm sure your regular listeners know, certainly by this period, the territorial princes have a significant say. Dynastion is still probably just about the norm, but <laughs> not something to be taken for granted. So he, Henry has to go north, has to make sure he secures support, has to make sure he consolidates power and authority. And so that's what he ends up having to do and kind of treating Sicily as lost. Mm. But he's then fortunate that his next opportunity comes after he's consolidated his power and authority and he's then able to march south in the mid 1190s and successfully take Sicily. Yeah, and, and, and thanks to some cash coming out of England for Richard the yes. Lionheart. <laughs> yes, thanks to a not insignificant wind financial windfall from the fact that Richard Lionheart has been captured by the Duke of Austria on his way back home from the Third Crusade. So he's got some money in his pocket, which is always an issue for the emperors, as I'm sure you're aware by this period, that um, precisely because of the power of the ter territorial princes, they don't have that kind of the tax-taking capacities of um, uh, the English crown or the Sicilian crown. Yeah. And of course, that becomes the kind of game changer then when we move towards Frederick II, because what happens is to move a little bit close towards Henry uh, Frederick II, obviously, is Henry VI establishes himself as king of Sicily, but only very briefly dies soon thereafter in fact Constance dies and what this means is this unification of the of the Sicilian regno and of the Reich and of the empire looks like it's now going to fall apart mm. because Frederick II is established as his heir in Sicily mm. um, but he's only a, a very very young boy he's only a couple of years old and there's no chance at all for him in Germany where kingship is now firmly elective and where the best chance is Philip his um, uncle his father's brother. So all of the Stauffer supporters line up behind Philip. Um, all of their opponents line up behind Otto of Brunswick. 
the um, wealth and we end up with stark divisions and civil war in Germany and a minority reign in Sicily under the very young Frederick. But it's this, I think, that then ends up being key in terms of me seeing him as a Sicilian Norman. That means mm -hmm. that although his father is very much German, he's actually born while his father is taking Southern Italy. Mm. He's, he's never had an opportunity to travel North with his father before his father dies. Yeah. He then is raised for another couple of years by his mother, but who then also dies. And then thereafter, he's raised by Southern Italian regions. And so when he comes of age, he's never lived in Germany. Mm. He almost certainly speaks some German, but we don't actually know how well. Mm. Um, certainly at best as a second language, probably a third or a fourth or a fifth language. Mm. Um, so he has a very, very strong dynastic claim, but it's actually a place he's never been to, never mm. spent any time with, has only really known secondhand from a few German advisors and not that that many even there. So when he heads north um, to claim the crown in finally in 1212, um, uh, and Germany's basically been in civil war pretty much the entire period since then, <laughs> his uncle has died. So now he is the leading candidate for the, the, the Stauffer backers. And the, the, pretty much the moment his uncle dies, people start building up support for him. He's then able to uh, come north and start staking this claim. But he's never been to Germany at all. Yeah. Um, and so it must have been quite a culture shock. And I think it is really telling that if you then look at his overall reign from 1212 when he heads north, he spends eight years in a row in Germany. Now, part of that, the first half of that, he is only one of the two, one of two rulers claiming it, where we still very much are in a situation of civil war with Otto um, having his own claims. After the famous Battle of Bouvines, disastrous defeat of the joint forces of King John and of Otto, uh, against the French king, uh, Philip Augustus. After that, Otto is kind of a spent force, but is not completely dead, but is basically only based in uh, Brunswick. But even thereafter, it's kind of slowly building this up. So after, you know, he's firmly established in about 1215, 1216, he then spends about four years in Germany, and then he leaves. And only once comes back to deal with the rebellion from his son. And, and indeed, while he's in Germany, while he's doing things like having his uncle's remains transferred to traditional dynastic mausoleum at Speyer for the emperors. He's at the same time making plans for his own future burial at Palermo. And I think this is really quite telling that he's always planning on ruling from Sicily. Um, and I think this is partly a matter of that that's home for him. That was mm. very much his, to use the good German term, sense of Heimat yeah. um, <laughs> uh, in terms of this. But also there are certain pragmatic reasons for that too. It's a much more centralized kingdom. It's actually his cash cow as well, even when he's in Germany. The Sicilian realm generates a lot more wealth, actually, in pragmatic terms. It may have less luster than the German yeah. emperorship, but in pragmatic terms, certainly for geographical size, it generates mm -hmm. a lot more wealth for the state, and the state itself is much more powerful there in terms yeah. of that. So he's able to also uh, rule, I think, much more as he would like in Sicily, whereas in Germany, you have to tread lightly with the territorial princes, and he's happy to delegate that to his son. And then yeah. when the son gets too big for his boots, he replaces him with his other son. <laughs> and, and I mean, in, in his time when he's in Sicily and, uh, you know, the, uh, the minority of, of Henry VI, how involved is he in, in, in German affairs? So is it really just he handed it over to the regions, he sends direction, general direction. But, but other than that, he's sort of really just focused on, you know, southern Italy, the Holy Land, his relationship with the Pope, that. That's His attention right. certainly is largely there. So yeah. it, 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 Germany is not a matter of typically pressing matters, but one of the issues there ends up being, and the reason why there is this major conflict with his son, precisely does seem to be one of kind of different cultural contexts mm. in terms of this. 
in that he can't stop meddling. He sees his son ultimately as uh, kind of his representative in Germany. He's had him crowned king, but he's not emperor, and you answer to me. You are kind of a sub-king. Mm. Henry has now lived, by the time he's an adult, much of his life in Germany. He's been set up as a king as a child, but he's now been raised very firmly in Germany in a context where the territorial princes demand respect and authority and significant autonomy. And so he starts to expect this from his father. Um, and this is absolutely central to kind of recent scholarship also on um, uh, uh, political identity and dynastic identity in the Stauffer period of our concepts of honor mm. um, and the importance of honor in aristocratic society. And so for him, it's a matter of honor that he's able to be an independent operator and that his father isn't undermining him. Mm. And what his father is not willing to do, his father sees his own honor being threatened by the fact that Henry tinkers with things, at times makes political moves against some of his old allies. And so it famously all comes to a head over uh, Margrave Hermann of Baden, who mm. um, Henry is moving against. And Frederick II basically completely undoes, does all of Henry's actions, says, you know, those are all null and void. And so Henry begins a formal rebellion because that's what you do in Germany. Um, oh, there's no other option, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and you start a rebellion, show you're serious, you know, and occasionally you'll come to armed conflict. But as much as anything, it's also a symbolic show. I'm upset. You need to respect me. You need to show me the respect that's due to me. And he would have expected, as a result of that, normally some kinds of concessions, perhaps he'd then have to, you know, symbolically submit, but there'll be some kind of give and take. Mm. But Frederick is having none of this. He marches north from Sicily and treats him very much as he would, uh, uh, much more closely to how he would a rebel in Sicily. Now, if he were a rebel in Sicily, he probably would have been killed. He mm. doesn't actually kill him, but he does remove him. He imprisons him, never allows him to see rule again in his life. Um, and again, for Henry, this is deeply dishonorable. So it, it does seem to be this kind of uh, moment of tension being created precisely by the fact that mm. Frederick is largely not bothering with Germany. But when he does, he's viewing it very much as a Sicilian would and mm. trying to run it the way a Sicilian would. And Henry, his son, wants it run the way a German would, because that's now very much how he has learned to operate politically. Yeah. And so how did it actually happen that, you know, Frederick II became that sort of German icon because I mean you know I think it, it is quite clear to me uh, uh, that he is very much a southern Italian uh, who happened to have the German crown but you know he plays a huge role in German consciousness I mean he was the original one in the Kiffhäuser right you know that just swapped him later so how did he end up being that you know Germanic figure you know what, what was his reception so I think there's two key, key moments there. One is, first of all, the medieval one. So the original ideas of the Kufweiser and the idea of him being the sleeping emperor who would come back, like the legends of Arthur, that comes from, I think, the nature of the conflicts involved in his life, particularly the really fraught conflicts he had with the Pope, where there were lots of accusations of, on both sides of the alternative, being antichrist mm. and mobilizing this kind of uh, deeply messianic ideas. And what this leads to is this idea at least amongst a kind of certain core of his supporters, that he was this kind of almost messianic figure, and therefore he mm. will rise from the ashes. He couldn't possibly be dead. Mm. Um, and so we get the false Fredericks of the Middle Ages, a whole series of people who appear saying, I'm Frederick II, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, uh, back again. Um, it's a phenomenon we see elsewhere in the Middle Ages, but never as intensely as with Frederick II. Um, mm. And it's helped there also by the fact that he's in the last, at least really successful, Stauffer ruler, and thereafter there's this period of interregnum. Mm. Um, and again, this political vacuum kind of invites wishful thinking. 
invites wishful thinking of, could this be the Stauffer returned and returned mm -hmm. to everything, you know, being controlled, you know, being um, uh, politically stable again. So there's that element, that's one um, a kind of essential piece of the puzzle. Then the other thing there is, is the more modern transformation. So the early scholarship on Frederick II in the 19th century tended not to see him necessarily actually as that, that German. Um, indeed, it often criticized him for not being German enough or so, not as much as uh, Frederick Barbarossa and, and figures like that. But the key moment there of transformation came with um, the fascinating, really, really fascinating scholar Ernst Kantorowicz, so uh, a German Jew, ultra-nationalist German Jew, who is cutting his teeth as a scholar in the 1920s. And in Heidelberg, he becomes part of the Georga Kreis, so, or the Georga Circle, this group of intellectuals around Stefan Georga, the great poet of the interwar years, but also great nationalist poet. And uh, in the Georga Kreis, one of the central ideas was this concept of a Geheimes Deutschland, a secret Germany, a Germany that kind of unites people, brings them back together and so on. And he then writes this really imposing and important biography of Frederick II and writes it very accessibly in a very literary language as well, influenced by Georga. Um, but which is designed to kind of do him justice. And it's the, the first really serious work of scholarship on that scale on Frederick II. So it, it, to this day, it's a work that serious scholars engage with and read seriously, but it's also a deeply ideological project. And the thing he wants to do is save uh, Frederick ultimately from these accusations of not being German enough. And so he sees him in fact of being the epitome of Germans and of mm -hmm. his, um, his Italian ventures weren't a distraction at all. They were essential to the, to the nature uh, of, of German power and see it builds him up to be this high point. Um, and you can see kind of why that could be presented as an alternative as well. If you look politically, that Frederick's reign, a bit like that of his grandfather, Frederick Barbarossa, was one of these moments where the empire is looming very large in Western Europe. He very much views um, a relations with England through those interwar years. So you, you can see the very, 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 very strongly anti-British sentiment in bits of it. Um, but ultimately it's a piece of wishful thinking written, it's published in 1927, mm -hmm. um, with an eye to what Kantorowicz wants in the future. And the dedication famously talks about how important the story is in diesen unkaiserlichen Zeiten, which is right. almost untranslatable <laughs> because it's in this time without emperors is the standard English translation. But of course, it also means in this time without Kaisers because they've just lost the Kaiser. And mm -hmm. so that's what it is, is it's a book that's also deeply imbued with that kind of uh, wishful thinking for uh, a Germany before World War One of the old Wilhelmine Kaiserreich. Yeah. Um, and so that's also a real part of this book for him. So um, he's pushing this angle of here's a model emperor for a time that needs emperors. Mm. Um, and, and there is this kind of therefore interesting tension and many of the members of uh, the Georga Kreis, not all, but many would go on to be National Socialists, or, or at least sympathetic to um, uh, the National Socialist rise. And it's telling Kantorowicz, although he's a Jew, it's, I, it, he waits a number of months after Hitler's election before he decides on balance, he's going to oppose the regime. Um, oh, wow. And this may seem really unusual for a Jew, and in many yeah. respects it is, but it's been argued quite convincingly by some of the modern scholarship to be because he is so conflicted, in fact, that there's a significant part of the Nazi project that Kantorowicz identifies with in the mm. 1930s. And as a later man, he was 
he would really distance himself from the biography of Frederick II. That, uh, people would sometimes want him to try to sign copies. He wouldn't always be willing to do so. He famously tried to oppose it being reprinted, but didn't have the rights to do so. Um, and once asked about it in his later career, he, I should say, for, for those who, for, for your listeners, he uh, became an emigre to the US, where he then lost his job at Berkeley because he refused to give the McCarthyite oaths. And he, he said in that context, I have, um, because he, in his youth, he had obviously been this ultra-nationalist, he said, I have literally fought communists in the street, but I will not, you know, swear this oath. I've seen what this does. Uh, so he, he, he kind of had a, a real change later on in life, understandably, given some of his experiences and the need to go into exile in terms of this. Uh, but he, he apparently later on in life, when, when asked about it, was known to say a different man wrote that. But there is this interesting, I say, this tension in it that, that he ends up being, although he's a Jew because he's an ultra-nationalist German Jew, mm-hmm. kind of contributes to a project that he almost a little bit too late then realizes is going to go very, very badly for him and for many other people who he would otherwise identify with. Uh, absolutely. Uh, that is fascinating. <laughs> no, I mean, I'd, you know, uh, Levi, this has been been absolutely Brilliant. That's really fantastic. Um, you know, can you just uh, tell us when, when's the book coming out uh, exactly? So, and in the US and the UK, same time? or It's published the 23rd of June in the UK and the 2nd of August in the US. Fantastic. So, I, because I have, uh, you know, I've obviously read it and, and I must say it is absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, this is, this is um, the, it, the great thing is, a, you know, the subject matter is brilliant i mean it's just you know there's one super story after the other and it's you know i mean listeners if you you've you've heard him talk you know he writes like he talks it is engaging interesting fun to to uh, to read i really enormously enjoyed it if you you know like the history of the germans you're definitely going to like the empires of the normans uh dr roach thank you so much (laughs) thank you for having me on (laughs)